Welcome to the Quest Podcasts. My name is Alan Mulhern. This is part three of the mini-series on Young's answer to Job. Carl Young, as we have noted, speaks with different voices in answer to Job. The term voices here refers not only to the style of writing, but the theories and ideas that belong to different schools of thought. The book splits into 20 chapters, many of which seem unrelated to each other. However, they formed a complex unity in Young's mind. This episode will summarise the first 10 of these chapters. Chapter 1. Young's voice, emotional, dramatic and one of archetypal psychology. Young is indignant in this opening chapter at the injustice done to Job. In the Bible story, Job insists he has done no wrong and believes it is possible to appeal to Yahweh, despite the immense power differences between them. Yahweh cares nothing for Job's moral opinions or feelings. But Job somehow believes that Yahweh is a unity and that he can appeal to the other side of him, the principled and moral God. Young then says with his archetypal psychology voice that Yahweh is not really split between the moral and amoral because he is not a human being. Rather he is an antinomy, a totality of inner opposites, which therefore contains the moral and amoral. Having introduced a profound but potentially confusing idea, difficult for readers to grasp, Young switches back again to the dramatic voice and says that there are plenty of other stories in the Bible that illustrate Yahweh's distinct personality, as he calls it, which could resemble that of an archaic king, who especially wanted to be praised as just. Although he was also jealous, irritable and mistrustful, he felt compelled to have a personal relationship to mankind, unlike the Olympian Zeus, who remained distant. In fact, Yahweh insisted on a special covenant based on laws, contract and justice. But now we have Yahweh breaking his oath, completely ignoring his covenant and inflicting personal and moral injury upon Job. For Young, it was obviously Yahweh at fault, since he had no self-reflection and acted with no morals. Chapter 2. The Voice Psychoanalytic and Gnostic Nevertheless, Job knows he has a slight moral superiority over the unconscious Yahweh, but realises it is better to hide this knowledge for fear of his reaction. Yahweh needs the special relationship with the chosen people, yet he has reneged on his own covenant. Young now switches out of the human drama of Yahweh versus Job to a psychoanalytic and a Gnostic voice. He suggests that the unconscious creator needs conscious humanity so as to develop himself. However, at the same time, the unconscious creator opposes this development. There is a drive out of the unconscious to produce consciousness, yet the unconscious at the same time opposes it. There is a conflict of opposites here, 
on the one hand, a natural emergence of consciousness, and on the other, a tremendous resistance and even opposition to it. Young sees this being played out in the great drama between Yahweh and Job, who are symbols of two complementary opposites. On the one hand, the miraculous, unconscious forces of the cosmos, represented by Yahweh, and on the other hand, Job representing the consciousness of humanity. He comments in chapter 2 of his book, Loudly as Yahweh's power resounds through the universe, the basis of its existence is correspondingly slender, for it needs conscious reflection in order to exist in reality. Existence is only real when it is conscious to somebody. That is why the Creator needs conscious man, even though, from sheer unconsciousness, he would like to prevent him from becoming conscious. Unquote. At the early stages of civilization, the unconscious still dominates, and consciousness is small and weak, though in some sense superior. God needs but opposes greater consciousness. Perhaps only Jung could come out with such an extraordinary but fascinating idea. But this is the Gnostic spirit in him, except that he mixes it with archetypal psychology. So this is really a new voice in world literature. In the Bible story, the impotent Job has the small light of consciousness that Yahweh is jealous of. Yahweh opposes it, although he has created it. The unconscious creates but resists consciousness. Therefore, the dark side of God decides to teach Job a lesson. But Job's consciousness, despite his impotence, is morally more consistent and superior to Yahweh's. Moreover, says Young, Job realises God's inner antinomy, the union of opposites, and therefore Job attains a certain divinity. Yahweh complains about the darkness in Job. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without insight? But really, says Young, this darkness belongs to Yahweh himself, who has let himself be so easily tricked by Satan into persecuting Job. Moreover, a persecution that was excessive and immoral. Later, when Job is proved innocent, Satan is not punished or even reprimanded. Moreover, Satan had easy access to the heavenly court and obviously had the ear of Yahweh. He is one of the sons of Yahweh. In other words, Satan is the dark side of Yahweh. Here is Young's heretical and Gnostic voice again. He suggests that, despite appearances to the contrary, Yahweh feels threatened by Job, who has something godlike. Moreover, Job sees that on the other side of Yahweh is the hidden and protected Satan. Job has to submit to Yahweh's power. Why does Yahweh have to display this power so much? asks Young. In some way, he must be afraid of Job. Job decides his best tactic is total submission. Quote, Therefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job chapter 42 verse 3. He decides to stop appealing to God against God. There is no appeal, only humility in front of raw power. Yahweh is not a moral upholder of the covenant, 
actually, he's not moral at all. He's not human. In some respects, he is less than human, like the great beasts Leviathan and Behemoth, which are the trophies of his creation. Indeed, the unconscious has an animal nature. Yahweh, says Jung, is more of a phenomenon than a human being. Young suggests that if the story of Job had been subjected to further critical reflection in the ancient world, then the Jewish God could have been exposed as an imposter, like the Greek and pagan gods, for their all-to-human traits. Young adds that it was not until 2,000 years later that this exposure of the frailty and weakness and hypocrisy of the gods was to occur in the case of Christianity. He refers to the scientific enlightenment from the 17th century onwards. Nevertheless, the drama of Job's story had been enacted in the unconscious and, quote, a scandal was blowing up in the metaphysical realm, whether at that stage it had reached mankind's consciousness or not. Chapters 3 to 7. The voice is mainly Gnostic, historical, but also at times psychoanalytic. Jung now goes back to around 400 years before the Common Era, when the Book of Job was written, and refers to other wisdom books of the Bible around that time, such as Proverbs and Solomon. He also uses the extensive Gnostic literature which he had studied. As ever, full of surprises and probably confusing the Christian reader, Young suggests that there is another divine figure in the background. This is Sophia. Although there is no mention of Sophia or any feminine influence in the actual Book of Job in the Bible, Young insists this is exactly what Yahweh lacks, a feminine side. He even suggests that Sophia is the equivalent of the Logos, which is the word of God in John's Gospel. Certainly some of the Gnostic Gospels, found in 1945, buried in the sands of Egypt, did speak of her like this. However, at the time of writing, answered to Job, in the early 1950s, these had not been translated. At any rate, Jung is deepening his psychoanalysis of Yahweh. Jung points to Sophia's appearance as the Great Mother and also to the praise of her that is implied in the wisdom books of Solomon and Proverbs. Young knew how this theme of the feminine in creation found its way into some of the texts of the Old Testament and also into the literature of the Kabbalah. Young is pointing to a weak spot, a lack of consciousness of the Abrahamic religions, their one-sided masculine emphasis. Yahweh, acting unconsciously with mankind, as exemplified in the book of Job, needed the lost Sophia to balance him out and provide wisdom, that is, compensate for his unconsciousness. Jung pursues these points by going all the way back to the book of Genesis, where there is no mention of a female consort to the masculine god in the traditional Bible. By the time we get to human beings in the creation story, the feminine came second. Eve came from Adam's rib. She is also blamed for the eating of the apple and succumbing to the serpent's temptation. 
and therefore for the fall from the Garden of Eden. We can see here a metaphysical dualism, a disunity that is now enacted in the human race. And at the back of it all, there is the lost Sophia and the one-sidedness of Yahweh. Like many Gnostics of the past, especially the followers of Mani from Persia, Jung believed there was an original mixture of the light and the dark in creation. The idea of a single, all-male, all-good creator made no sense to him. Remember his early experiences as child and boy, which forced him to see the dark side of God. Thus, in the act of creation itself, there is, Jung points out, a division of the upper and lower waters, divided by a firmament, the land. Here Jung sees an original division into opposites. Thus we have Yahweh apparently responsible for creation, but then the serpent appears, which is responsible for the fall of humanity from the Garden of Eden. Surely, theologically speaking, the most significant event in our history. Here is the division into opposites again, this time into good and evil. Adam and Eve are split into the masculine and feminine. With respect to the children of Adam and Eve later, we see a split between the good and the bad, with Cain killing his brother Abel. Cain is like a copy of this dark side of God. Young comments, It is clear that this unavoidable dualism refused, then as later, to fit smoothly into the concept of monotheism, because it points to a metaphysical disunity. This split, as we know from history, had to be patched up again and again through the centuries, concealed and denied. This is Jung's true philosophy, and it is pure Gnosticism. A metaphysical disunity for Jung meant that this dualism is archetypally built into human consciousness and flows into every part of the human psyche. Jung continues his Gnostic and psychoanalytic critique, pointing out that Yahweh lacks genuine relatedness, or eros, in his covenant or marriage with Israel, which is rather a perfectionist intent, a purpose man must help him fulfil. This lack of relatedness is most evident in the book of Job, where this God turns out to be a monster. All of this speaks of a perfectionist masculine tendency, says Jung, which, because it is one-sided in Jewish history, ends up in failure and as its opposite. In other words, the dark side of God breaks through in the book of Job from what is otherwise an attempt to create an all-just God. Jung, next, with his archetypal psychology voice, pursues his theory that the feminine leads to wholeness, while the masculine tends towards perfection, one of his favourite themes. Yahweh, that is, the consciousness of the Abrahamic religions, doesn't recognise the opposites that lie inside of him. Neither does he recognise the absence of the feminine in himself. So, in the Jewish tradition, after the book of Job, which makes these opposites obvious, there is a tendency to minimise the inconsistencies, for example, to present the more consistent loving Father God, 
After the book of Job, the covenant is rarely mentioned. There is less talk of the children of Israel and more talk of the children of men. But a new feature that now appears on the scene is the increasing apocalyptic communications. This points to unconscious contents which are ready to erupt into consciousness. In all of this, Jung suggests we discern the hand of Sophia. In other words, there's still a tremendous lack in this idea of a monotheistic, one-sided God. And the greater the efforts to clean up his act and to make him consistent, the more some other darker feature will erupt on the scene. The important point, emphasises Jung, is that the incarnation of God into man, through Christ, is a world-shaking transformation of God, an objectification of God. God needs to become a man. Jung says, quote, It was only quite late that we realised, or rather we are beginning to realise, that God is reality itself, and therefore, last but not least, man. This realisation is a millennial process, unquote. So God is manifesting and developing itself through mankind. Mankind is the son of God. And here we come to one of Jung's most radical Gnostic propositions, which surely scandalised many of his orthodox readers. The real reason, Jung suggests, for God's becoming man is to be sought in his encounter with Job. Because Job is superior morally to God, then Yahweh has to catch up, and this implies the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Yahweh, supposedly the guardian of justice, has done an injustice to mankind. Because his creature has surpassed him, he must regenerate himself. Young sums up, The immediate cause of the incarnation lies in Job's elevation, and its purpose is the differentiation of Yahweh's consciousness. For this to happen, a situation of extreme gravity and intense emotion was required, without which no higher level of consciousness can be reached. Young now, with his archetypal psychology voice, mentions that Christ is an embodiment of the hero myth which is ubiquitous in history and very popular in the ancient world. This does not mean that Christ is not real, but rather that he is real because myths are real. They are the foundation of the psyche. That's a very interesting point by Jung, but I'm sure many readers were quite confused at this point. Jung, next in historical voice, is quite aware of the difficulties of a literal belief in the New Testament. For example, he says one of the most disturbing things of all is that the oldest of the New Testament writings were those of St. Paul, who did not know Christ personally and did not seem to have the slightest interest in him as a concrete human being. Young also points out that the four major Gospels of the New Testament, the Synoptic Gospels, are equally unsatisfactory, as they have more the character of propaganda than a biography of Christ. Christ had to drink the dregs of mortality on the cross with the agony of his famous last words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This is the retribution for Job. God has to suffer. 
it is his turn. Chapter 8, Young returns to the theme of evil and insists that it is continually mentioned in the Bible. For example, Herod's massacre of the innocents around the time of Christ's birth and Satan's attempt to tempt Christ to become the ruler of the world. However, something has changed with the incarnated Christ since he has a vision of Satan falling from heaven like a bolt of lightning. Young interprets this as a separation of good and evil in the heavens, with Satan being banished out of heaven. He no longer has the ear of God as in the book of Job. This is Yahweh's attempt to clean up his act, divorce himself from his own darkness by incarnating into the perfect nature of Christ. It is an attempt to deal with the duality of God. However, evil or darkness or negativity are prevalent throughout the earth and in the human species. Satan reigns in the sublunary world. He was not banished to hell, but to earth. Only at the end of time will he be locked in hell. Interestingly, Jung argues that Satan cannot be responsible for Christ's death, because this is programmed into the myth of the dying gods in the hero myths, and his death is also a reparation of Yahweh's injury to Job. This is pure Gnosticism. Yahweh therefore wishes to convert into the loving all-good God, the Summum Bonum. But it is difficult to maintain this position because at root, God is a duality. Despite all his best efforts to be loving, God's actions in the book of Revelation again reveal his wrath against humans. Even though the work of salvation was supposed to be completed in Christ, the book of Revelation informs us that Christ's reign will only be for 1,000 years, which implies that salvation is not complete. For then, the Antichrist will come, another mighty manifestation of Satan. God's incarnation through Christ into mankind must have stirred up Satan's jealousy and wrath. It seems there is no getting away from darkness and evil. Perhaps trying too hard to be good accounts for a mighty reaction in the opposite camp. Chapter 9. What happened to the Incarnation after Christ's death? It seems there was still a need for salvation to be continued because Christ also promises that the Holy Ghost, the third person of the Trinity, the Paraclete, will come to the Apostles and to those who believe. This could spread out from the narrow group of believers into the whole world. While the Protestants believed later that the Revelation finished with the New Testament, Catholics believed that there could be continuing revelation through the Pope guided by the Holy Ghost. Young continues to insist that this is still the expiation of the injury done to Job, as if Christ's death was not enough for the expiation, and certainly not enough to finally deal with evil. The teaching of the Catholic Church is that Christ's death is expiation of human guilt for sins, which are an injury against God. Young's Gnostic position is the opposite. Christ's death is an expiation by God to human beings for the injury done to Job, that is, to human beings. The Church's view is a terrible picture of a God who requires that his own son be sacrificed 
for the injuries done to him by humanity. This is appalling behaviour by Yahweh, who is still angry and raging against his creatures. But why did he create them in that way? He must have known how imperfect his experiment in creation was. And Satan is always present, especially as mankind becomes more conscious and more separate from his instincts. Chapter 10. The belief that God is all good is simply not credible, says Young. The God image in reality for him is a mixture of opposites. This divine ambivalence starting in the heavens pervades the whole human sphere and manifests in the world as a polarity of the dominant God archetype. Young even suggests that this may extend into the schisms of the church of the previous 400 years, or indeed the Cold War itself, where two opposite camps of East and West threatened the planet. We hope that this summary has encouraged you to read both the Book of Job of the Bible, as well as Young's answer to Job. If this topic begins to inspire you, I am sure you will find it also inspiring to look at the engravings of William Blake, the 18th century English mystic. They are entitled Illustrations to the Book of Job and are widely available on the internet. In our next episode, we shall continue with the summary of Young's book, after which we ponder its significance to analytical psychology and to our own times.